International lawyer, diplomat, writer, and activist Hilal Neuer is the executive director of UN Watch, a human rights NGO in Geneva, Switzerland. He holds four degrees, including an honorary degree from McGill University, for his work to advance human rights and for being, I quote, a voice for those without one. On September 14, 2016, the city of Chicago and Mayor Ram Emanuel adopted a resolution declaring Hillel Neuer Day, citing his role as one of the world's foremost human rights advocates and his contributions to promote peace, justice, and human rights around the world. The Tribune de Genève has described Neuer as a human rights activist who is feared and dreaded by the world's dictatorships. The Journal de Montreal wrote that Neuer makes the UN tremble. Israel's Mariv newspaper named him to its list of the top 100 most influential Jewish people in the world. He's an acclaimed speaker who has testified often before the UN and the United States Senate and House of Representatives. Mr. Neuer has taught international human rights at the Geneva School of Diplomacy and served as vice president of the NGO Special Committee on Human Rights in Geneva. Since 2009, he has headed a coalition of 25 human rights groups as chair of the annual Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy, a renowned international gathering that provides a global platform to courageous pro-democracy dissidents from around the world who put their lives on the line to demand fundamental freedoms in oppressive regimes. Concordia University magazine said Hilal is helping to shape history. Prior to joining UN Watch, Noe practiced commercial and civil rights litigation and even represented Oprah Winfrey and other high-profile individuals and corporations. In 2017, his banned UN speech became the most viewed and written about NGO speech in the history of the United Nations. News reports described it as a stunning rebuke of the UN Human Rights Council and a diplomatic moment to remember. In 2017, his Where Are Your Jews speech before the UN HRC replicated in multiple languages across social media was seen 3 million times on Facebook and nearly 5 million times on YouTube. It's my pleasure to introduce Hilal Neuer to I'm That. How are you doing today? Great. How are you? I'm pretty great. I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk. And you are in Switzerland? Yes, sir. In Geneva. Where you have, uh, we have sunny skies. Um, we have some blue skies. It's a bit cloudy too, but whenever you get a bit of blue sky in Geneva in the winter, it's great. Otherwise, one needs to escape to the mountains to go above the clouds. But uh, when Geneva is pretty, it's, uh, it's a very nice place. As I said, I'm very excited to talk to you. And before we jump in, I'm going to ask you the question that we usually open up with here on the podcast for I'm That, which is Hillel Neuer. Can you please complete the sentence? I'm that. Most hated man at the UN. You know, I'm not surprised that you would say that. I mean, you had a few things like I would have imagined you would have said. Tell us about that. Well, look, that, that's my reality, uh, Eitan, uh, here in Geneva. Uh, I've been here now for a number of years. And when I walk into the United Nations, it's, it's a very tangible, uh, powerful, and significant um, feeling. You walk in and there's eyes around the room of, of you know, if looks could kill, I'd be dead a thousand times. There's, there's a number of hardline Arab states uh, such as, I don't know, Syria um, or, uh, or radical Muslim states like Iran, and they look at you and, you know, we're exposing their lies and hypocrisy uh, all the time. And we're speaking out against the demonization of Israel at the United Nations, which is in violation of the United Nations Charter, which speaks of equal treatment of all nations, large and small. So it's obvious that the Syrians, the Iranians, the Libyans, uh, and some others are going to hate us. That's kind of obvious um, for me and UN Watch. 
But then, you know, it's the, the net is much wider because UN Watch doesn't only speak out against anti-Israel bias. We speak out for human rights that are neglected at the United Nations. When the UN puts China, Russia, Cuba, um, you know, Pakistan, uh, Venezuela, Eritrea on the Human Rights Council and Kazakhstan, which is shooting at protesters, you know, in the past week or two, uh, we're the first ones to call them out on that. So we're, we're bringing their victims to speak, some of the most famous dissidents and political prisoners. So dictatorships, a whole range of dictatorships um, hate me. So so there's those things are kind of obvious. The less obvious thing is, and then there's the UN officials in the room who are kind of the bureaucrats, and not all of them, but a number of them don't like us because they would like to think that when they wake up in the morning and go to work for the UN, that they're doing something noble and altruistic. Um, when maybe that's their intention, but if you're serving, if you're a bureaucrat and your job is to serve the Human Rights Council, which is now 68.1% non-democracies, dictatorships, um, you're serving something that's not very pretty. And we're lifting up a mirror to that. So many of the UN officials, could be French people, Swedish people, you name it, uh, don't like us either. Um, and then just to make the net a little bit wider, where we sit in the room at the United Nations in the back is where the, you know, it's the government sit, let's say in the front, and in the back is the non-governmental organizations, and that's the human rights groups. And, and sadly, while we work with a number of them, we work with 25 groups to organize an annual human rights summit, but some of the larger well-known groups like Amnesty International and others are um, in, in the past couple of decades have tended to go to the fringes of the radical left. I would say they're in the camp of Jeremy Corbyn um, and they hate Israel, they hate America, they hate the West, they hate capitalism. Um, not that we're defenders of capitalism, but we, we don't think that uh, Cuba uh, or Chavez policies are the economic solution, they're not. Um, so when I walk in the room, I kind of embody everything that they hate. Um, and and we and we're effective, and we're we're and we're not just doing Israel. We're doing human rights issues around the world, and we're doing it differently than they do because they have a very radical agenda. And I would say we're centrists, and there's a whole bunch of human rights people who come to us because their issues are getting neglected by the others. So there's just a lot of hate when I go around the room. If you take a 360 camera, it's the dictators, it's the Arab and Islamic states, not all of them, mind you. After the Abraham Accords, it's the UN officials, it's NGOs. So. I'm the most hated man at the UN. So we'll talk about what it is that you do and everything. But before we get to that, I understand what you're saying when you explain it, why you're hated. But how does that feel? I mean, from a very personal perspective, how does that feel to be, how do you deal with that, with that, with that hatred on a personal level? It's unpleasant. It's not nice. It's negative energy. I don't like to spend more time in the room than I need to. Um, and, and I would say there's, there's different kinds of, I have different kinds of reactions. When, when I see that the Venezuelans or the Cubans or the Syrians, you know, uh, hate me, um, well, they're kind of working for dictatorships. And in a way, in a way they're, they're, they're doing their job. Some of them actually, a number of them do believe in it, do believe in what they're, they do believe in the hate. Um, I don't know if the Venezuelans and Cubans always do. I have some indications that they don't, but you know, sometimes the the Syrians, the Iranians, the PLO representatives, they believe it, and I've I've you know bumped into some of them in in the hallways, and and it was it's unpleasant. So that that's that's unpleasant. What's worse, Atom? What's worse is um, the NGOs. That's hard because we we are an NGO, and so we we meet with them in different um, we sit with them in different fora. Uh, we might be invited together with diplomats and. 
you know, when, when a number of NGO activists in Geneva cross the street because they don't want to be seen next to you, even though they'd have no problem, you know, meeting with a Hamas terrorist or Hezbollah terrorist, the people that Jeremy Carbon calls, quote unquote, his friends who seek um, uh, peace and political justice and social justice. They'd have no problem meeting with those people because that would be bridge building. But for me, they'll literally cross the street. That's unpleasant. And, uh, and it's, it's, not, it's not easy to deal with. So how do you deal with it? I mean, like, I think that when, you know, when thinking about like, I don't know, uh, unpopular football player at the moment when he has to psych himself up to go out into the stadium and there's going to be a lot of booing. I always wonder like, what, what, what's that like? I mean, how do you do, how do you, I mean, when you go to work, do you prepare for that in a certain way? Do you kind of like switch off? Do you meditate? Do you kind of like, just be like, or, or does it do the opposite? Just like, no, fuck these haters. I'm going to go and I'm going to fight today. You know, I've got a job. Yeah, to do. I think, um, uh, yes. On, on the whole, when I go out there, I guess I'm putting on my armor, maybe the way a, a lawyer goes. I was a lawyer a bit, but I didn't, didn't spend too much time in court. Um, but maybe when a lawyer goes into court, you're, you're, you're on. And uh, so certainly when I head towards the United Nations, I'm on and, and I assume that I'm under attack and it can, it, it's usually not physical because it's Geneva. So we usually play by Geneva rules. But when I'm in the room and I speak and I only get, you know, two minutes or now it's even a minute and a half and one feels embattled because you're speaking and there's, there's people around you uh, who could be turning at you and looking at you. There's the Chinese official, he's banging on the, on the thing, trying to interrupt you. And so just to be able to sort of finish your speech. So yeah, I, I think you, you have your guard up. I don't meditate, maybe I should. There was a speaker that we brought uh, once who went outside and uh, is an interesting person. And he, he put his face to the, to the grass outside at, at the UN, nice garden outside. And he did a kind of a meditation and maybe I should do that. I don't know, but no, I guess I, I guess I put my guard up, um, and uh, and I'd say that one thing that's significant that gives me a lot of um, energy and strength, or it has for many years, is I know that I'm I, I know what I'm up against. And when you sit in that room and you hear such terrible things, whether it's against Jews or demonizing Israel or 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 uh, terrible lies about human rights, where you have the Chinese government you know, embodying everything, the worst things that you've seen from 1984, saying that, you know, the Uyghurs in Xinjiang, where we have documented evidence that about a million people have been uh, herded into camps, and they say, everyone is happy there, everything is wonderful. And we have testimonies from other countries who say how everything is great. So you just hear these terrible lies. And that uh, does empower us. And it does empower me, because often, not always, but often, we're the only ones in the room at the United Nations, so that's the world, we're often the only ones in the world who are going to expose certain lies. So that does give you a lot of moral energy. Um, and I hope it doesn't make us sanctimonious, but it's certainly you, you are up against true evil. And that does give us that does give you with a lot of force looking at my speech, or I'm hearing what they're saying. And I know that I have something important to say, it's only 90 seconds. But I'm it, I want to say it, it's going to be recorded and it's going to go out to the world. And some of our clips have been seen millions of times and no one else is going to say it. And that you, you know, you're going to push the buttons of, you know, maybe 50 countries, a hundred countries, there can be up to you know 193 countries in the room. And that's a powerful thing, knowing that you're in the room and you're taking on the Iranian and the Syrian. And um, so I'd say that that gives us a bit of, because we're up against such, such giants of evil that, that does give a uh, corresponding um, 
uh, energy. Let me let me actually just read the first line um, from the UN Watch's uh, mission statement, which I have on your website here in front of me, because I think that that best sums it up. United Nations Watch is a non-governmental organization based in Geneva, Switzerland, whose mandate is to monitor the performance of the United Nations by the yardstick of its own charter. Now, I don't think a lot of people know that that's what you do. It's not that Hilal Neuer is up there just saying all sorts of bad things about, about what the UN is doing in human rights. It really is about calling them on their shit based on what it is that they said that they would do at the beginning when it was founded by Eleanor Roosevelt. So, um, and I think that's, that's something that people really don't know that, but you're, you're saying things that they said, you're calling them out on stuff that they should be doing, that they said that they would do, that they're not doing. That's right. That's right. And I think, um, you know, speaking of the founder's generation, uh, someone who was not quite as old, but but is of that generation, was Morris Abram. He founded UN Watch. And he was a civil rights activist. He was close with Martin Luther King, not in the 60s, when it was already uh, more popular, but in the 50s, when he was a Jewish lawyer in Atlanta, Georgia, and it was not popular to speak out for the Black minority. And uh, Morris Abram did. And he, he was one of the leading civil rights activists uh, who, who was not black in the, in, in the 1950s and the 1960s um, and, and helped defeat the, the, uh, the Georgia election system, which effectively denied equal voting to blacks and got the US Supreme Court to rule one man, one vote. Um, and Morris Abram was also a UN human rights expert. He drafted, he's one of the drafters of the UN Anti-Racism Convention, Convention on the Elimination of Racial Discrimination. So indeed, when we speak, we speak on behalf of an organization that was founded by one of the leading civil rights figures, leading UN human rights figure, leading anti-racist figure, who believed as we believe in the UN Charter. The United Nations Charter is a product of the uh, best of liberal internationalism. The World War II era was FDR and his brain trust that sat there and, and wrote the Charter of the United Nations. So it really rep represents the best of humanity, at a time when they were taking on the Nazis, it represents moral clarity. Uh, it speaks for equal rights, fundamental freedoms, um, human dignity, peace, security, all the things that we believe in. And a number of United Nations bodies have done the necessary work. You know, I, I, we work next to the UN Refugee Agency where millions of refugees turn to them for help. They can't help everyone, but they try and we need them. And there's many other UN agencies that, that, that are fulfilling their mandates. But Sadly, over time, uh, too many UN bodies have gotten hijacked by dictatorships, and the West often is silent. And uh, here in Europe, they are often silent. People go along to get along. Countries go along to get along. Diplomats go along to get along. And so, indeed, when we speak out, when I see Libya <clears throat> as they were, when Gaddafi, when his ambassador was chairing the Human Rights Council, uh, the Human Rights Commission, and chairing the lead up to the Durban II conference, the anti-racism conference of 2009. It's just crazy. And, right, and I'm the bad guy, right? I'm the one being interrupted. And Gaddafi's ambassador, Najat al she's sitting there with the gavel in hand. And, and, and we're saying, no, something's upside down here. Uh, we actually believe in the United Nations Charter and you putting Gaddafi's representative here is completely a, perverted, a perversion of the UN principles. So yes, the, the, 
The surreal thing is that when I walk into the UN, I'm the bad guy and the UN officials are looking at me, oh, he's here to make trouble. When, you know, sitting on the Human Rights Council today are China, Cuba, Russia, Pakistan, Libya, Mauritania, where there's slavery, all right? And the list goes on. So do you, at this stage, do you have faith in the UN to actually change or do you feel that they're too far gone? I mean, I know that this is what you do and you're, you're, you're there, you're fighting, but I mean, come on. I mean, do you really think that they're going to change at this stage? Well, you know, the, the UN is kind of like a, um, a river. It's um, the, the water is changing all the time. Um, it, it's, it's um, you know, governments come and go. So, you know, the United States under Trump is not the United States under Biden. They have different positions at the UN. The United States is sometimes voting at the UN in a conservative way, conservative way on issues. Um, and sometimes voting in a liberal way. And you take uh, other governments, um, you know, governments come and go, and, and the US is not even an extreme example. An extreme example would be, you know, um, uh, would be Afghanistan. So Afghanistan was a US-backed government up until recently. They were elected to the UN Commission on the Status of Women, to the Executive Board of UN Women. Afghanistan currently holds those seats. And if the Taliban gets recognized, which they've requested, they will sit on the UN Women's Rights Commission. So, so the UN, uh, UN reflects the world, okay? It's, it's a skewed representation because the UN is not representing legitimately 1.4 billion Chinese people. They don't have an elected voice. They never got to vote in a free and fair election. So it's the Chinese regime. So the UN represents the governments that control the world and, and they can come and go. When there was the Soviet Union, the UN had a resolution called Zionism is Racism. The day after Soviet Union collapsed, the US succeeded in repealing that resolution. So yes, there is hope. Um, it's, it's, you are quite right that it's far along. And I'd say I, there are two UNs, all right? There are two UNs. There's one UN is the UN that I described, which sometimes apologists for the UN like to refer to that as the UN is, the, is Madison Square Garden. It's just a room, it's a forum, it's 193 countries. It, it has no, um, it has no uh, corporate characteristics. Um, it's not a corporate entity. It's a, it's a forum where 193 countries sit. And if you're angry at the UN, you're just angry at X number of countries. Um, you're not angry at the UN. All right, that's, there's some truth to that. Then of course, there's something entirely different, which is the UN Secretariat. Here you're talking about, I don't know if it's 10 or 20,000 or more, I don't have the exact figures, but thousands of people, UNRWA itself has 30,000 UN officials, who, well, people who work for UNRWA. So you have, thousands of, you have thousands of people who work for the UN and that's the bureaucracy. And, and, and those people, there is a certain culture. And certainly there, I would say that it's mixed. You know, there too, it's mixed. There are some UN officials that I know who are really trying to do the right thing. And they do want the UN Commission of Inquiry on Venezuela to hold Maduro to account. And there are other officials who are, you know, Cuban apologists who work there. So even within the bureaucracy, you could have a rift, but I'd say it does have its own culture. And that, that is a corporate entity of a kind. And then I would say the two come together because, you know, the Human Rights Council has a chair, a chairman or a chairwoman. Um, last year, it was from Fiji, um, uh, Najat Khan. And she interrupted me, wouldn't let me finish a speech about UNRWA. And so she, she represents sort of a, a government and she represents the intergovernmental body, this forum that I told you about, but she's, she was taking instructions. You could see the bureaucrat, the civil servant whispering in her ear saying, here's what you should do. You should interrupt Hillel or he's handing her a piece of paper. 
So really it's a combination as like in, in the government. And if, if you remember the British show, yes, minister and yes, prime minister. So there's the civil servant. Sometimes the civil servant is telling the minister what to do. So really it's both that the culture has both the civil servants and the governments and the intergovernmental bodies, and they are of a piece. And if you take them together, because one influences the other, um, the Human Rights Council has a Twitter account. When I first saw that, I said, that doesn't make any sense. The Human Rights Council is 47 nations. They only adopt resolutions. They only speak when they adopt a resolution or a statement. They can't do regular tweets. The United States just joined the Human Rights Council. Is the United States being asked to approve every tweet? And it turns out that the Human Rights Council Twitter account, they've put it's the Secretariat of the Human Rights Council that's putting out the tweets. So it's kind of, um, they have their cake and eat it too. They, have, they can put out a good tweet about something, um, about the situation in Kazakhstan. And if Kazakhstan, which is on the Human Rights Council, complains and says, wait, the Human Rights Council never approved that tweet. They said, no, no, but we, we put in the byline, it's the secretariat, so we, the bureaucrats, we put that out. So the truth is that it's all of a piece. Both the intergovernmental body and the civil servants are kind of working together. And um, sometimes each one trying to deny saying it wasn't us. The civil servants were say, not angry at us. I'm the UN Human Rights Office. I'm the Office of the High Commissioner. Um, I'm Michelle Bachelet. You know, that wasn't me who did that. That's the Human Rights Council that did that. That's this political body. But the truth is that they're really of a piece. And there is a culture. And the culture has developed in a way that's very anti-Western. That is, that there, there's, there's a toxic alliance where you have um, the dictatorships who want to demonize the West, who historically want, sought to demonize Israel, um, and a number of NGOs who agree, who also are sort of anti-colonialist, anti-Western. And so you do have this mm, red-green alliance. Um, so the UN is far along in a bad way. We don't give up because there is no choice. You know, this is the world body. If you give up, you're saying I'm giving up on the world. And it can change. And when the US does the right thing, when the UK does the right thing, when Germany and the Netherlands do the right thing, good things can happen. And actually today, as we speak, Eitan, the Israeli government is introducing a resolution. It's a sad day. It's 80 years since the Wannsee conference when top Nazi officials met in a villa in Germany in 1942, 80 years ago, to plan uh, in a bureaucratic way, the rounding up, deportation, and systematic mass murder of millions of Jews. And that's 80 years ago today. And on this day, Israel is introducing a resolution against Holocaust denial. And 70 countries have joined with it. I'd say it's a very rare moment at the United Nations when I expect that we'll get moral clarity. I expect the resolution will be passed. I was sad to see that almost all of the sponsors are sort of Western countries. I didn't see any Arab or Islamic countries on it. Um, and a number of other countries should have been there or not, but there were 70 countries who sponsored it. I expect that it will pass. So this is just an example of, you know, it'll be a resolution against Holocaust denial, calling on countries around the world, social media companies to do everything they can to combat Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism. That's definitely a rare moment, but, but I'm giving you a long answer, but just to sum up, if our democracies in the free world step up and do the right thing, they can make the United Nations a decent place. And we, we don't have any choice but to fight for that. So I think you do have a choice, but you choose to fight. And so I think most of my listeners know, and I think most people know uh, clearly of your support for Israel, but there is so much more because you've advocated and testified at the UN for, for many different people. And you've touched on this a little bit, the victims in Darfur in particular, you've tackled the UN HRC track record on human rights. Um, against nations, and you've mentioned a few of these, like Sudan and Cuba, Venezuela, Syria. 
uh, women's rights in the uh, in the Middle East, repression of speech in Saudi Arabia, human rights violations in in many many places. So, what really drives you, Hilal? Like, what you the person, not you the organization? Like, you, why do you do what it is that you do? And maybe this is an opportunity to talk about how you got into this. What drives someone to to fight to make the world a better place because essentially that's what you're doing and that's not something that is a given yeah that's a choice and yes, you said I we am. don't have a choice and right. I, th I think that we do i think that you do right. i think you make a choice every day so right. why what drives you yeah i i um i'm not sure if i have a, a single answer but I, I guess i'll try to uh reflect and and think back a bit um Certainly, uh, I grew up in an environment uh, at home and in my school and I'm in my community in, in a traditional uh, background. Um, uh, learned a lot about Judaism, uh, and Judaism is an activist religion. You know, the first thing that you that we learned when we learned the Talmud, which is the compendium of, of Jewish law. Um, is the obligation to return a lost object. And it sounds kind of mundane. So someone lost and found and return a lost object, but there's something profound in it, which is someone dropped something on the street and lost something. And you're sitting at home and you see it on the street or you're walking somewhere and you say, all right, well, you know, um, uh, finders, keepers, losers, weepers, as we said when we were kids, uh, tough luck. Uh, or, you know, I'm in, I'm in, I live in Switzerland and people are very, uh, you know, made a comment that when, when, the, when the pandemic began, he said, you, you have to keep two meters distance from people, social distance. Um, I put up a comment. I said, I, I, I can't wait till this ends until we can go back to the norm of five meters social distancing in Switzerland. So the norm in Switzerland, people are very polite, but no one gets in your way. And, and if, you, if you'd be sitting there with a giant map and your face is lost in the map, Normally, people would not come up to you and say, sir, can I help you? You're obviously lost. If you'd ask someone, they'd help. But there's a tremendous sort of distance. And that's in, in some Western societies, we have that. In Israel, obviously, it's very different. That's the opposite. But, but I would say Judaism does not, uh, does not accept that you can be indifferent to, to someone losing something. You see something, you must return that object. There's another idea in Judaism. Um, which is the the uh, someone is the, the Bible tells of someone who uh, who a traveler who was in the in the in the fields in the forest and and died. We, we don't know how how this person died, but they were they were out out there in in the forests in the in the fields outside the city and they died. And the nearby town has to give a sacrifice and has to kind of uh, make a communal apology. And why does the town have to apologize? What, what did they do? There was some traveler who died. Well, the, 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 uh, the commentary is that, that this person may have been a, a stranger who was visiting your town and no one, no one offered that person, that man or woman hospitality. No one said, how are you and took care of them. And then they had no choice and they wandered along and they got uh, accosted by a wild animal or, or a criminal and they, they were killed. And so you, you have to apologize that and say that, you know, you, 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 um, you, you bear responsibility. So I, I, I think I grew up in a tradition that says you're responsible. You can't be indifferent. And I do think that's why Jews who are also not um, necessarily religious are activists. I think that activism is actually part of the religion. You cannot be indifferent. You, you have to care for the other. Um, and I certainly grew up 
with that tradition. Certainly, uh, when I grew up at the time when, when Jews were uh, in the Soviet Union, were being arrested for teaching Hebrew, um, for, for practicing their religion. Uh, I remember demonstrating in the bitter cold streets of Montreal in front of the Soviet consulate um, to free uh, Anatoly Sharansky, who later was freed and became Natan Sharansky. So that was part of my background. Um, and so I, I think I always, I always had that activist spirit. Um, and, and I guess I did always have a, a passion and an energy. And yeah, from the time that I was in, in high school and college, I was uh, always an activist. Um, when I was in law school, I had the privilege to study with one of the great human rights activists of our time, Professor Erwin Kotler, mm-hmm. um, who is- A great, great man. Yes, the counsel for the oppressed. Um, you know, uh, he's someone who was a lawyer for some of the great political prisoners of our time. And, um, and I got to see that as a model for human rights work. Actually, I took, I took any, every course I could in his, when he was teaching at McGill. And one of, one of his classes was, was a civil liberty seminar. And he asked the question, what will you do when you're the head of a human rights NGO? What will you do about this or that? And I remember going around the room and you had to answer that question. I didn't know what he was talking about, um, but I guess he had planted a seed. Uh, because about 10 years later, yeah, less than 10 years later, I was the director of a human rights NGO. So I think that those are some of the things that influenced me growing up. And I would just say that, again, to quote Professor Kotler, he, he says that to fight for justice, you have to have a sense of injustice. And maybe I'm, um, yeah, maybe I'm spoiled. But at the United Nations, it's not that hard to see the injustice when you walk into that room. So sometimes if I'm feeling a bit um, you know, unsure about a certain topic, I'll say two things about that. One is if you walk into the United Nations, you see terrible things, you see terrible injustice, you see or complete Orwellian inversions, and not just by the dictatorships, but by the civil servants who go along with it and who will revise UN press releases to try to change history. Um, and I've seen it happen on the, the night the Human Rights Council was created. It didn't follow procedures. Canada objected. This is June 2007. Um, and Canada made formal objections and the UN altered time because there was a certain time period. You had to, things had to be adopted by midnight and it happened past midnight. So the UN changed the press release and changed the summary of what happened um, in order to alter history. It's kind of a Stalinist kind of move. There were objections by the United States and others afterwards, but it just happened. So these are just examples of, of these, these terrible injustices you see that again, give me that energy. Um, and you know, maybe someone else who doesn't give them that energy. And I guess it's not really for me to say why one person has that and one person doesn't. The other piece that I'll say for me is that, as you said, we do speak out for human rights victims around the world. And one of the great things we do is the Geneva Summit for Human Rights and Democracy. We've been doing it now for 13, 14 years. And every year we bring the most courageous, inspiring uh, former political prisoners, Vladimir Karamurza, who was poisoned twice in Russia and is continuing to live in Russia. One of the most brilliant people I've met um, uh, who gives speeches at the UN, perfect speeches off by heart. Nobody does that, he does that. Was poisoned twice, went into a coma because he is one of the leading dissidents. Um, Yang Jianli, who was a political prisoner in China and went back to China. um, And you hear his story of how he was in prison and feeling crushed in solitary confinement until one day he got a year later package of letters that were sent to him from around the world uh, of people supporting him and that stiffened his spine. 
So you meet these incredible people. That is one of the great things about my job. Not, not all, it's not all negative. You meet to, great to meet, get to meet inspiring people. And, you know, to come back to your question, why I make that choice and, and others might not, I guess it's for others to, to say, but those are some of the things that move me. What's the, um, what's the hardest thing? About what you do. I mean, you, you opened up by saying I'm the most hated man in the UN. I don't know if that's the hardest thing, but like, what is the hardest thing for you? What's the hardest thing about your, your job? Yeah, that, that can sometimes be hard. Certainly when it's, um, again, the closer it gets, as I said before, you know, if it's the, if it's the Cuban or the Chinese or the Syrian ambassador railing against you, um, that's, that's, that's a badge of honor actually. Um, but if it's, a major NGO who's uh, treating you like you're contaminated, um, which in some cases is anti-Semitism in a modern cleaned up form. Um, those are definitely very hard. And I'd say that it, there, is, there is frustration and I'm, you know, I'm dealing with a lot of negativity. I'm dealing with dictatorships. I'm dealing with mass human rights abuses uh, happening all the time, testimonies and meeting victims of terrible things. That is difficult. And there is a lot of frustration in the work. I'd say in, in you know, we, we're fighting for, against anti-Semitism, we're fighting against uh, discrimination against Israel. That's frustrating because it's pervasive and it doesn't seem to be going away. Uh, I think our work is necessary, but it doesn't seem to be going away. So I'd say that's, that can be frustrating. Um, and, uh, and the same with human rights, you know, uh, people sometimes ask, well, you know, how do you affect change? And, you know, it's like, the Soviet Union, resisting the Soviet Union, that evil regime lasted for more than seven decades, but it did fall and it, 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 and it fell without a shot, but it fell because there was, you know, uh, Solzhenitsyn and Sakharov and Sharansky and many other people who refused to tell lies. And because, because tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions of people did march in the streets of Montreal and Washington and London and Manchester and all around the world. And, and each, each, bit was a brick. So we look at the Iranian regime, which is a, an evil regime, which is taking hostages. Um, Nazanin uh, Ratcliffe is an innocent woman and she hasn't seen her daughter and her husband for years because they're keeping her as a, as a hostage for, for they want to, Iran wants something from the UK. So she's just a, a, a hostage for her. And, and there's at least two dozen other hostages Iran is, is keeping. And, and I, I meet so many victims of the Iranian regime and um, it's been around for a long time. It's been around for more than four decades. Um, but I do believe that every time we do a press conference and every press release and every tweet and every speech is one more you know, piece um, that uh, in, in the fight to end that regime. So, you know, it's interesting because that touches on, on something that I wanted to ask you about success, which is how, how do you measure success in your field? Like, is it like the little victories that you have? And that ties into another question that I had, which is, are there more victories than there are losses or is it the opposite? Well, good question. So uh, I'll start with the last question, more victories than losses. Um, you know, um, it's, it's, it's hard to get victories where we are. And again, the question is, you know, what do we define as victory? Do, do we think we're gonna get a UN vote on uh, Chinese human rights abuses tomorrow? Unfortunately, no. The last time that I went to see an ambassador 
to ask them to introduce a resolution. Um, it was from a large German speaking country. I'm not gonna say the name of it, but a very large German speaking country here in Europe. And the ambassador uh, literally laughed at my face, literally laughed at my face. He said, who's gonna bring a resolution on China? Okay, in 2004 is the last time that a country did introduce a resolution in China. So that's 18 years ago, that was the United States. And it hasn't happened since then. And um, so to, but you know, we, I'll mention, I'll mention two things. Um, we introduced a resolution several years on Venezuela, just a draft resolution. We couldn't formally submit it because only a, a government can do that, but we circulated it. And I went to Madrid and I gave it to the Spanish foreign ministry. And I said, you need to submit, the, here's the text. I've written it for you, submit it. And we did this for, for a number of years and we brought Venezuelan activists for about a decade here against Chavez and then against Maduro. By the way, Venezuela is a country for those who don't know where 5 million people have fled. 5 million people have fled Venezuela. It has naturally, I think more oil reserves than Saudi Arabia. It's naturally one of the most wealthy countries in the world, but it was squandered because of the um, uh, awful authoritarian socialist um, dictatorship policies of Chavez and Maduro that destroyed the country um, and uh, repression, uh, human rights abuses and 5 million people have fled. And for 10 years, we, we worked on this and we introduced you know, circulated resolution. And finally, about two years ago, for reasons that may not be due to us, but maybe we planted a seed, the UN did introduce a resolution on Venezuelan human rights. And there is a fact-finding mission on Venezuela that reported on their crimes against humanity. So, um, and when, when I meet the Venezuelan activists and they say to me, Hillel, thank you um, for all the work you've been doing all these years. And you're one of our, um, you know, best friends and supporters at the United Nations. And when someone escapes Venezuela, a MP and comes to Geneva, they ask us to organize the press conference and they can ask so many other groups, Human Rights Watch and Amnesty. And in many occasions they come to us. So that for us is, is a victory. I'd say the, the, those small thank yous that you get from a leading dissident means everything. Um, and it's from people in the know. I'll mention one other case about planting a seed is, um, you know, Libya was elected, as I mentioned, chair of the Human Rights Commission back in 2003. This is when Colonel Gaddafi was the dictator. He was there for decades, one of the most brutal dictators of the time. And yet he was elected chair of the Human Rights Commission. And then, um, then they created the new and improved Human Rights Council in 2006. Gaddafi was reelected as a member of the Human Rights Council. And we started a campaign, expel Gaddafi. And people laughed at us. They said, hello, 140 countries voted for Libya. Nobody voted no, no one spoke out. The US didn't speak out. Western Europe didn't speak out. At the time, Gaddafi was an ally uh, of some kind. And then a short time later, the end of 2010, if memory serves correct, um, there was the war began in Libya and Gaddafi said he was gonna kill his own people and France and the UK started fighting him and Obama was leading from behind and joined and, and they toppled Gaddafi. And um, hold on a second, I'm just gonna turn off my phone. No worries. Um, and um, sorry, I forgot to turn off the ringer. Folks on a podcast, it's like the beginning of a movie. Remember I'm, to turn off your phones. I'm not even going to edit that out. I'm going to no keep, worries. I'm no worries. It's all just the way it is. It's the way it is. This is how it flows. Um, and uh, and suddenly the British government got embarrassed of the fact that Libya was on the Human Rights Council and they were fighting a war with him. And they brought they called a special session to suspend Libya from the Human Rights Council. And then the General Assembly ratified it 
and they removed Gaddafi from the Human Rights Council. And this was a campaign, we, start, we started the campaign. We got, I don't know, 50, 70 NGOs to sign. We brought victims of the Lockerbie bombing, which Libya had done. We brought victims of Libyan torture, um, Bulgarian nurses and a Palestinian doctor who were tortured by Gaddafi. We brought them to the UN. So we launched the campaign. People said, there's no chance. And for the first time ever, a country was removed. So it was because of us. I don't think so, but we planted the seed. The idea that you could remove Libya um, was written in, in the charter of the council, but you know, we, we planted that, that idea in the minds. When the UK stopped voting against Israel, which they had done for a number of years uh, here in Geneva at the Human Rights Council, and when they, they, set, they announced a few years ago, first Theresa May, then Boris Johnson announced that if the Human Rights Council will continue singling out Israel under this agenda item that only targets Israel, they will vote no on every resolution. And eventually they did. And when the, the British ambassador stood up to uh, explain why they voted no, they quoted our data and statistics on the UN bias, on the extreme UN bias um, and came from UN Watch. So there definitely are many moments of frustration, but there's those uh, few but meaningful moments uh, where something actually changes. It's not necessarily the ultimate change you want, um, but it's progress in that direction. And the other thing I will say, and I, here I spoke about, you know, removing Libya from the Human Rights Council um, or getting a resolution on Venezuela. Those I would say are rare outcomes. Uh, getting a country to change its vote, it's, you haven't changed the resolution yet, but the votes begin to change. That's a kind of an outcome. And then there are things that are minor victories for us which is, I can't stop, I, I wish I could, but I can't stop Iran, the Islamic Republic of Iran, from getting elected to the UN Women's Rights Commission. And they're gonna take their seat on March 25th, 2022, yeah. right? I Iran was elected. Um, and, uh, but well, we didn't know they were running. It, these things are sometimes buried until it happens. But um, we did expose it to the world. We did get the truth out to the world. We did embarrass governments around the world. We did embarrass the United States uh, into having to explain uh, what their position was. We did embarrass Canada into promising that it was a secret ballot, but they, they wouldn't tell their secret ballot, but eventually they said we did not vote for Iran uh, on the UN Women's Rights Commission. So we exposed that to the world. Um, and that tweet getting, you know, 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 retweets being seen 700,000 times and, and being quoted in newspapers around the world those are moral victories. They're not just moral victories, they're truth-telling victories. And those happen every day. Um, that's not the final outcome, but it's, uh, it's important steps towards, towards achieving justice. Yeah, one of my, uh, one of my favorite quotes, um, I actually don't even know who, who, who said this, but I've, I've, I've mentioned it on my podcast before, is little by little, a little becomes a lot. And I really believe that. And I think, uh, you know, that's in life and everything, whether it's a creative endeavor, you know, okay, I have a thought in my head, I, I'm just going to put a couple of words down. And that can turn into, you know, something magnificent and, and inspiring. And I think that that's what, that's what you're talking about, just like these little things, you just have to do them, you know, and, um, and that's inspiring. I want to ask you, um, before we get to the questions from some of uh, my online community, uh, something that you mentioned and that we we know is about Israel being singled out, um, and I think I, I I I think I know the reason, and but but I think that there are a lot of listeners who 
might not know so much about Israel and might not know so much about anti-Semitism. So I'll ask the question to you, because uh, I don't think there's a better person to answer the question, um, which again might be obvious to some. Why is Israel singled out? Um, let me first uh, outline some of the statistics and then, and then give you my, uh, my own sense of why this happens. At the General Assembly, which is the Parliament of the United Nations last year, there were about 14 or 15 resolutions on Israel. There was one on Iran, one on Syria, one on Myanmar, uh, I think maybe one on Crimea, maybe one other, North Korea, if I mentioned, and that's it. So one on Syria, uh, 14 or 15 on Israel, and that's it's, everything. It's just insane. It's, it's insane. insane. And there's insane. zero on China, Cuba, Zimbabwe, Pakistan, Venezuela at the General Assembly, and you can go on. Okay. So, you know, 15 to 1, Israel represents about 0.1% of the world's population. Uh, it's about 10 million people, not, not quite, but almost there. And, you know, China has 1.4 billion people. There are zero resolutions on China, the biggest human rights abuser in the world by any measure. So why Which, is by, this? By, by the way, just not to interrupt you, but I'm going to interrupt you. But like, it makes complete sense to me, given the state of the world, why people are afraid of, of China. But Zimbabwe? Right. Cuba? Right. Who right. gives a fuck? You know what? I mean, yeah. I mean, that, China, I understand. It yeah. doesn't, you know, but... Realpolitik. Yeah, yeah. 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 Sorry. No, 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 no that, that's, that's a very good point. Very good. I think the, the norm is, and that you raise a good point. On China, I get people are afraid of China. China, if you, if you vote the wrong way in China, you're in trouble, right? Ireland signed on to a speech with a number of other countries calling out China for something. And the next day there are headlines in the Irish papers, China cancels contract for Irish beef. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, you're, people you're, get it. Yeah. People get it. But like you say, you know, um, uh, Zimbabwe and many, many other countries that, you know, the norm at the UN is not to criticize countries. That's the norm. It, 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 it's kind of looking out for each other and to be diplomatic. And that really is the norm. And criticizing countries is the exception. It's because something terrible is happening and there's a political coalition available to call that out or because there's something else. And that leads into the Israel thing. So my, my uh, sense of why Israel is singled out, I identify the following two categories. The first category is what I would call a kind of realpolitik, um, which is who introduces the resolutions on Israel? It's the Palestinians together with the Arab and Islamic states. Um, and, and that enmity was taken for granted for at least seven decades. It was sort of obvious the Arab world was fighting wars against Israel, saying they want to destroy Israel in 1948 and, and afterwards in 1973 when, when Israel was invaded on the holiest day in the Jewish calendar in Yom Kippur by Syria and Egypt. And, um, and Israel thought its existence may have been uh, threatened as it did in 1967 um, and in 1948 for sure. So th there were Arab wars against Israel and, and the UN was just seen as another uh, forum for those wars. Um, if the Arab states could not defeat Israel in a military battle filled well with the, with the UN as it was configured by the 1970s with the third world countries and the Soviet Union uh, directing them against America and sort of Israel as a proxy, then you quickly got this, this uh, automatic majority uh, against Israel. So it was the Arab and Islamic states. Um, today, the Palestinians play a role in that, but the Arab and Islamic states against Israel. And then the question, okay, fine. There's only 
well, there's 22 Arab countries. And if you, and if you make the circle larger, Islamic countries, there's 56 Islamic countries that have the vote. Okay, that's a lot, 56, but that's not 193. How do you get, how do you get those larger majorities? So why do the rest of the countries, why do so many European countries? You, you can, people should know we have a database called unwatch.org slash database, unwatch.org slash database. And you can get all the stats about the things I'm talking about. And there you'll see, if you punch in France, Germany, the Netherlands, you'll see that the average European country votes for about two thirds, maybe even three quarters of the resolutions against Israel. So yes, we get why Iran and Syria would introduce 15 resolutions against Israel and zero on Zimbabwe. But to make the question even more pointed, why, is, uh, why are Latin American countries, why is Peru, um, why is um, Singapore, which actually has good relations with Israel, why, um, why are you know, European countries voting against Israel in such large numbers? And they do, it's a, probably at least 75% against Israel for most countries other than the US, Canada, and maybe Australia. Those are the general statistics. Why is it? And I identify several factors. Number one, vote trading. The UN works by vote trading. You vote for me, I vote for you. It's sometimes very crass. There's sometimes literally an agreement. I've seen copies of agreements that were leaked online where Saudi Arabia wrote to Russia, I'm gonna vote you on the Human Rights Council, you're gonna vote me on the Human Rights Council. By the way, Russia and Saudi Arabia were historically not aligned. Russia backs Iran and Syria in the region. Saudi Arabia was you know, another US alliance. So they were not aligned, but they made deals like that and many other deals all the time. So if you have 56 countries from the Islamic world knocking on your door, sending you a telegram, pulling up in their BMWs in front of your, your diplomatic mission and your chancellery saying, this is our resolution, you need to vote for it, and then we'll vote for you, then hey, like you said, I understand why people might be hesitant to condemn China. If 56 countries say they want something and it's 56 in one side of the scale and the other side of the scale is one is Israel, no brainer. I have interests. Every country has interests at the UN. And I need those 56 votes for whatever my issue is. All right. That, that we get. Um, sad. It's wrong, but we get it. Then I would say there's sovereign wealth funds. There's money. Qatar you know, has billions of dollars in sovereign wealth funds. And you vote for us. You might get investments. You might get trade. And you don't vote for us. You might not. So the influence of money. Oil. Historically, the Arab countries had large parts, large quantities of the world's oil, which they still do and would use it as a weapon. In the 1970s, they told African countries, if you don't break relations with Israel, you don't get oil. So most of many African countries, if not most, broke relations with Israel after the 73 war and the oil weapon was used in a very powerful fashion. So that was countries said, we need oil. We need to power our economy. Um, and finally, I would say terrorism. Countries, if you're gonna be one of the few countries that are gonna vote with Israel against a biased resolution, you might be the target of terrorists. And who wants to stand out and say, hey, you know, we're standing with the Jews, you know, come, come get us. No, you know, um, whether it's an overt threat or a implied threat or just an understood threat, um, I think there is a fear of terrorism uh, which continues in the world today. So those are all realpolitik reasons. We don't like them. They, they, don't, they don't speak about justice. They don't speak about what's right. They don't speak about the UN charter. They don't speak about equal treatment. Um, but we get that's how the world works. That I think explains a lot, that if there were 56 Jewish countries uh, with 56 votes, and if Israel discovered more natural gas, um, and if there was less terrorism, terrorist threats in the world, I think that uh, the votes would be different. But there's another factor that I need to mention. Um, and it's not rational, because guess what? 
um, governments are run by people and human beings are not always rational. We can be irrational, we can be super rational. And um, when I sit there at the United Nations and when I see European countries, European diplomats raising their hands to vote against Israel one after the other, I don't always see them you know, being forced by the, the vote trading and the oil and the money and the interest and reluctantly voting. Many of them raise their hands with great ease and comfort to point the finger very comfortably to point the finger at the Jewish state and say, you know what, I, I know I'm, I'm putting words into their mouths, but I know you accused our European country of, of you know, collaborating with the Nazis and helping to deport 90% of our Dutch Jews to, to the death camps. And, um, uh, but you know what, uh, the Nazis were racist occupiers committing genocide and crimes against humanity and ethnic cleansing. And you know what, Israel, the Jewish state, you're an occupier, you're racist, you're uh, uh, committing crimes against humanity and war crimes. And basically all the crimes that were accused against the Nazis are now today thrown against the Jewish state. And, um, you know, if in the middle ages, uh, the, uh, when, there were the, when there was the black plague, we saw immediately the instinct was to scapegoat the Jews and say the Jews poisoned the wells and we have to attack the Jews. And in modern times, as my teacher, Professor Kotler has said, Israel has become the Jew among the nations. If there's war in the world, if there's suffering in the world, if there's human rights abuse in the world, it's Israel's fault. You know, we wouldn't have this, we wouldn't have wars in the Middle East if not for that uh, bleeping little country uh, said a European diplomat some 20 years ago in reference to Israel, scapegoating Israel. I remember at the Human Rights Council when it, the new Human Rights Council was created in 2006. And one of the first things that happened was the Arab countries uh, interrupted the founding session, which was supposed to be nice and pleasant and nothing was supposed to happen of a condemnatory nature for about a year until they made the rules. First thing the Arab countries did was called an emergency session to condemn Israel because Hamas had tunneled into Israel, kidnapped Gilad Shalit. Israel began to respond and they called an emergency session to condemn Israel. And I remember the European countries saying, ah, we're, we're ruining the, the opening of the Human Rights Council. It's Israel. Israel again is ruining, the, you know, because the Arab countries called an emergency session to demonize Israel. So um, I do think that beyond all the realpolitik, which we can understand, I think there is an irrational forces at play. It's not Zimbabwe getting 14 resolutions. It's not Peru getting 14 resolutions. It's not Kazakhstan getting 14 resolutions. Um, it's Israel, it's the Jewish state. And um, that's not accidental. And so, yes, I do think that to be blunt, that one of the reasons Israel is become sort of the world scapegoat that for a number of countries, not for all of them, but for a number of them, there is a certain natural comfort. Countries that for many years had the inquisition where they condemned the Jews. And it, today when religion is, perhaps our, our new religion is international law and human rights in the new church of, of the world, which is perhaps the United Nations, uh, Israel is the antichrist and Israel is the one that is the object of continuous commissions of inquiry and kind of the inquisition. And that makes, there's a paradigm. There's a meme for certainly uh, countries in the, in the West, people in the West, of the Jew as the scapegoat. And I, I think that we, it's not the only reason, but I think that's part of the reason that Israel gets the treatment it does at the United Nations. I think you summed it up pretty nicely. <coughs> I'm gonna ask you, um, I'm gonna ask you a question, which is, um, 
I don't know if anyone's asked you this before, but if you weren't doing what you were doing, Hilal, what, what else, what would you be doing? Like I'm, I have a branding agency and I love branding. Um, I really love what I do, but there, you know, there are times when I'm like, oh man, I just, I just, I just want to go and be a gardener. I mean, but I have fantasies, like they're not about gardening, but I do have my fantasies. So if you weren't doing what you were doing, because it's stressful, it's negative, it's like, it's anti-Semitism, it's anti-Israel, it's fighting for justice, it's, it's heavy duty shit. If you weren't doing that, and I won't even get into how the fuck did you get into this unless you want to talk about it. But like, if you weren't doing this, really, what would you be doing? Yeah. Um... Well, you know, uh, I did once do other things. Uh, I did spend a number of years just thinking about um, constitutional law, and I did do a master's in comparative constitutional law. So I was Don't studying you have like four degrees or something. Um, yeah, I I have uh, four degrees that I earned honestly, and a fifth degree, I guess, that I got as an honorary degree from an honorary doctorate from McGill University. But yeah, I have a, a BA. Uh, in political science and liberal arts, kind of Western civilization. I have uh, a degree in civil law, which is sort of the French system in Canada. I have a degree in common law, uh, which is the English system in Canada. And then I have a master's of law. Um, and then I got a doctorate, an honorary doctorate from McGill. So uh, so I have four four degrees plus, yeah. So I, I, did, I, did, I, did, I did enjoy uh, most of my courses, but certainly law I liked a lot. And I used to, before there was Twitter, I used to spend my time just sitting in libraries and really uh, just looking at books and opening up old books and of uh, great thinkers. And, and I could really, you know, have the um, state of mind to think deep thoughts and contemplate. And I could I, actually, I could actually see you as a librarian. I could see yeah. you sitting at the front desk and just like, how can I help you? And uh, yeah, that's in section capital A Z four two Z. And you just like go for a mile and find that book. I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't be so good at categorizing things. Um, no, but you'd know where the, you'd know where they are. You'd, maybe, and, and, maybe. And, you'd, and you'd have read it probably. Maybe, but there was a time when I really, I, I, I was in, in that world and I, I did think of becoming a law professor. So um, certainly um, I'd say the, the thing that I'd like to do is to have the chance not always to deal with the day-to-day -day battles of everything that I'm describing, but to uh, burrow deeply into getting to deeper levels of truth on things which require depth of thought. And, um, and I, I enjoy doing, I would enjoy having the time and the state of mind again, because if you're on Twitter, which, which I am on, and maybe I'm on it too much, but it, it can uh, shorten your attention span. And uh, I would like to have the ability to write, certainly to write a book. Maybe I can find a time to take a sabbatical. I think that would be great, at least of a few months to write a book. But um, yeah, if, if I weren't doing this, if the problems were solved, and if, if uh, for some reason I decided to retire from this, which is not in the cards anytime soon, but um, I would like to do something in terms of from a professional standpoint and a personal standpoint that would be meaningful, would be to, to think deep thoughts about some of the issues, which might be law, human rights, um, things, of things affecting Israel and anti-Semitism uh, in the world. Um, and uh, th those are on a thinking level. I, I also like doing things. I like to make food. I, I make a very mean chicken soup. 
Mm. Uh, I make uh, one of the best chicken soups in Geneva for whatever that's worth. Wow. Wait, um, that's, that's wait, that's quite a statement. Okay. Well, yeah. I'm, I'm going to be coming to Geneva at some point. Oh, so, um, but you, have to, you have to like a Knedlach and it's like a, it's I'm officially, I'm officially inviting myself to your house for dinner. You're invited. You're invited. It's the real deal. Like Bubby used to make. Oh, wow. Um, and, uh, and they also make great sandwiches. Um, oh. Once I used to think that I would enjoy having a, a sandwich shop. Um, I'm sure I wouldn't because it would be annoying, but, <laughs> yeah. but, but just, I like making people sandwiches. So, so those are fun things that I like to do and they're toasted and they have a lot of things in them. There's a lot of sprouts and tomatoes and, uh, and pickles and there's tuna and there's a bit of mayo and there's. So, so, so you put me down for a chicken soup and a sandwich and I'm in Geneva. I'm, I'm, I'm coming over. You're there. I'm, I'm, already, I'm already hungry right now. Just listening to you. I Easy. want one of those sandwiches with sprouts and lots there of stuff. You go. And toasted, the toasted bits. Toasted. Really good. Toasted. So sandwich maker, soup maker. Okay. Yeah. Those, those are, those are fun things. And, uh, and I like bike riding. Um, and, uh, and I love listening to music. Um, and and uh, actually, like who who are, you, who are you listening to lately? Um, I've been listening to uh, different things. Um, there's there's a song that got into my head recently, which was um, uh, "Every Kind of People," uh, which is actually by Robert Palmer from a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's kind of a bit reggae-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, so that. That's nice stuff. I was recently getting into um, Stephen Stills and C- Crosby, Stills, Nash and Young, and Joni Mitchell. Wow, um, so old school. Yeah, yeah, old school stuff. But I, I, I like. I'd say I like an eclectic uh, kinds of music, um, which I probably most people do. I, I'd like to think people who like music like different things. Um, I, I don't have it on my on my uh, computer right now, but I used to listen to a lot of rap. Um, including from old school, from when it began, more or less from Run DMC um, through to uh, through to Dr. Dre and uh, and uh, and others. So you might be surprised, but uh, a lot of I'm black a- music. Um, you know, since I was a teenager, um, I loved listening to uh, Motown and the '60s. Good man. Um, music. So, but I also like listening to some of the great music from the eighties. And I don't mean like Cindy Lauper, which is fine, but I mean bands like U2 and the police. Um, so yeah, but if I, if I hear great songs, I'm not, I don't follow so much, you know, the latest hits, but if I hear something great, then, then, uh, then I have it and add it to my Spotify. And um, yeah, so I, I, I like a, a, lots of different kinds of music. Unfortunately, I never got into classical music um that much though i try to listen to verdi when i'm doing work you see that's interesting like you surprised me with the with the rap i thought you would say classical music i mean when i'm working i like to listen to dre i like to listen to tupac you know like i I actually when i'm working i listen to rap a lot of rap and i'm all about motown and soul that's actually prince i mean i'm a huge prince fan but um but i also listen to classical music you know it just calms me down i would have i would have thought that but anyway i think that um I, what would be great is just let me just ask you a couple of questions and maybe we can i know if you can answer them i'm just cognizant of your time as well so maybe we'll... come back to the music cuz it's important oh, i didn't oh, grow yeah. up in a classical music family i grew up my father is a rock and roll fan oh. so it's uh, elvis presley and buddy holly um and the early beatles his musical musical interest ended about 1960 two or 63. 
So, uh, so I grew up with rock and roll and the other stuff is kind of just a natural progression, you know? So from there, but yeah. <laughs> well, good. Um, all good things I heard. I'm going to ask you a couple of questions that, uh, that I have here. And I, I don't know if we can answer, if you can answer them succinctly, um, I'm, but it's really just, I'm cognizant of your time. So I think like there are quite a few comments, like, you know, I love your work. Can you share some objective achievements you had in counteracting the hijacked UN bodies? And I think that you answered that. Um, but I, here's one, like, I'd like to know what uh, Hillel thinks of the Uyghur genocide currently happening in China. How is this being tolerated? Genocide anywhere is profoundly horrifying, and I don't understand why we as a global community continue to accept it. So the Uyghur uh, genocide. Yeah, look, I mean, the term genocide, some some countries have, have recognized it as a genocide. Other people hesitate to use that term. They'll hesitate to use that term because it, not to conflate it, let's say, with the Nazi genocide where they killed six million Jews and millions of others. Um, there's no evidence that China is killing millions or thousands of Uyghurs, but there's a, there's a UN definition of genocide, which is wider than killing. It's, um, you know, trying to erase culturally a people and so forth. And that's clear. It's clear that we know that China is, you know, trying to shave off their beards and stamp out their Muslim practices and their language and their culture. That is extremely clear. And there is strong evidence that a million people have been herded into some kind of re-education labor camps. And uh, you know why is the world silent? Well, the world is not entirely silent. A number of parliaments um, have, uh, I think it was Canada uh, and a number of others have recognized this as a genocide. A number of countries are speaking out. The United States is speaking out quite robustly. The State Department uh, has spoken out. There's now you know the Olympics coming up in Beijing 2022. A number of countries are calling for a diplomatic boycott. So people are speaking out, but why are, why are more not speaking out and actually doing something? And I think it comes back to what you said before. People are afraid. China is huge. They are not shy. They're not shy at all. When, when there is a, a diplomatic mm, initiative in Geneva, to a uh, government says, oh, we're going to have a panel about what's happening with the Uyghurs, China will send a very strong message, a letter to the ambassador saying, if you go to that event, not if you vote for resolution, if you go to that event, we are going to reconsider our relations. And every, every country, walk into any store in the world, go to the shelf and, I don't know, try to find something that isn't made in China. It's impossible. Basically, everything is made in China. Um, and China is maybe building your subway in your country and may have loaned billions of dollars to your Turkish government or Pakistan or you name it. So China is huge and they are aggressive. So people are doing things. We're speaking out. We've spoken out. UN Watch has spoken out on the Uyghurs going back since 2009 or 2010 or well over a decade when we brought people like Rabia Kadir. We brought uh, recently Jewer Ilham, whose father is uh, in prison because he is a Uyghur who spoke out. And we've continued to put that issue on the top of our agenda. And sadly, uh, too many governments are going along to get along. That's a good answer. Um, what was his nickname in YU? It was a good one. I imagine that's Yale University. Someone called Shalom Shai Necht. Don't know who that is. And I didn't go to YU. They probably mean, they probably mean Yeshiva University. Oh, Yeshiva University. But, but I didn't go to Yeshiva University. So uh, maybe the person's conflating me with Tom Cruise or someone else, but it wasn't. Yes, clearly, obviously. This is a good one. What wall does he bash his head against? Uh, I think that's a very good question. You don't need to answer it, but uh, I, I, okay. I thought that was good. How do you keep your resilience? I think you've spoken about that. Um, 
I think this is a good one. Like, what can Jews do to fight back against casual anti-Semitism on the left? I know that that's a whole subject, but just if you can touch on it. Well, the subject of anti-Semitism on the left is uh, difficult because anti-Semitism on the right is the kind that most of us can easily identify. Anyone in mainstream society agrees that being a Nazi is evil, uh, saying that Jews are inferior or bad because of their ethnicity and their race is evil. Um, and anyone in mainstream Western society certainly um, uh, is brought up in everything in our society and our culture to immediately identify and, um, and condemn and reject traditional right-wing uh, classical anti-Semitism like the Nazis or neo-Nazis or Holocaust denial and so forth. But anti-Semitism in history has always taken different forms. Anti-Semitism for well over a millennium in Europe was religious because society was religious. So the instinct of hating Jews, that scapegoating took on a religious form. And so we were, people in Europe were told the Jews killed Christ, the Jews killed God. But anti-Semitism is a virus that mutates uh, over history. And we saw that when society in the 19th century no longer became religious and was scientific uh, in nature, then the accusations against the Jews was based on, were based on science. So in Germany and elsewhere in Europe, it was, there was this new racial science and it was science that said the Jews were inferior and bad and were, were a virus that were you know, destroying society. And when societies uh, were communist, the accusation were that Jews were capitalists and that they were nationalistic when they should have been internationalists and, and so forth. So, and then in capitalist society, Jews are accused of being communist. And today in modern times in Western society, and here I'm coming to the left, in Western society, our virtues are uh, human rights and anti-racism. These are perhaps the greatest virtues of society today. And so it's not accidental that if you want to hate Jews, you know, anti-Semites today are very clever. They know if you wanna be effective and if you live in America or in Canada or Europe, or Australia, you, you don't say, oh, I, I don't like Jews that will automatically, you know, they'll disinvite you from the, from the TV station, from the, from the interview, you'll get turned off. But if you say, oh, I love Jews, but that Jewish state, Israel, they're just, um, they're acting like Nazis. They're the worst country in the world. They are the most racist country in the world. Actually, there's not just problems in Israel, it's an apartheid regime. It's the equivalent of evil. It's the greatest human rights abuser. Yes, there should be 15 resolutions on Israel and you know one on Iran, but 15 times more on Israel. And that's entirely based on objective human rights, international law. The fact that it was Syria and Iran that passed that resolution that is called defining international law. We're not gonna talk about that, but, but I'm, you know, I'm speaking in the name of human rights, international law, anti-racism, and based on those virtues and based on my virtuousness, I'm going to say that Israel is the most evil country in the world, and it's an apartheid regime. That is the anti-Semitism we see today on the left. And let me be very clear. I am not saying, and no one is saying, that Israel should not be held to account and criticized for human rights abuses. Of course, there are human rights abuses in Israel, as there are in many other countries. Um, and they should be called out, and Israel should be held to account. Um, but the notion that Israel is the most evil country in the world, uh, which is what you do hear from Jeremy Corbyn types, uh, and groups that echo his narrative, including NGOs like Amnesty and Human Rights Watch. The head of Human Rights Watch, Ken Roth, 
is obsessed with Israel. Several times a day, he will say Israel's an apartheid regime. He will talk about war crime settlements. That for, for him, he, he's much more passionate and animated about Jews building a home in Judea, whether that is a violation of international law or not. But he's much more morally outraged about that than you know the killing of a thousand peaceful protesters in Kazakhstan. So what can we do to fight it? And what can the average person do? So how do you do to fight it? So it's not easy. Okay, I don't have a magic solution. Um, and I think the best thing that a person can do is, you know, is to state the facts. And, and again, you have to pick your battles. You, I, I don't think you have to pick a fight with everyone. There are some people you're not going to convince. But if there's someone you're speaking to that you think you can convince, or there's a forum where you think some people might listen to you, uh, you know, on Twitter, I don't respond to... Uh, thousands of anonymous tweets that say nonsense or anonymous comments on Facebook. But if someone with a platform says something and I feel that there's a public debate where the, the time I put in and the words that I, that I invest in can be spread wider to a larger uh, audience, then that's a good thing. So I think every, everyone does have that opportunity. Everyone does have a Facebook feed and an Instagram feed. And if they feel that there are ways that they can um, uh, correct the record, on things, then that's what they should do. So I, I think the only way that I know, and I, and you know, something that is that is a sickness. Anti-Semitism is a sickness, and it's the problem of the people who are sick. Um, but I'd say two things. One is to just state the facts. And if Israel is being accused of the most evil state in the regime, evil evil country in the world, then I think uh, people should say, you know. Uh, we're not here to claim that Israel is perfect because it's not perfect. And there are a lot of problems that need to be dealt with. All kinds of problems like Switzerland, where I live, there's all kinds of problems. And people may think it's an ideal country. It's not. And so too for Canada, where I come from, every country has got all kinds of problems, but it's not the most evil regime in the world. And you can clearly make that case. And so people need to make that case. The other thing I think, and if it's, you know, obviously Jews who are asking that question is to live a life as a proud Jew and not be ashamed. And, you know, the Jews didn't survive anti-Semitism because there were groups or people fighting anti-Semitism. They did because they understood and appreciated the beauty of their religion, of their tradition, of their people, and they were proud of it. And I know there's someone called Eve Barlow on Twitter and, um, I think she speaks about that. And, and I, I think Barry Weiss does too. Um, and, you know, and I think that- well, Eva's, uh, first of all, Eva's great. I don't know if you know, but she, I interviewed her on I'm that, so you should listen. To okay. The I, I've seen a number of your podcasts, but I didn't see that. She's but great. She's, she's great. And I mean, these are people who are fighting anti-Semitism, but I think just, you know, for Jews who are feeling embattled, it's many Jews don't know very much about their tradition, about their religion, about their culture, about their people, about Israel. And they should discover their heritage the way that that um, you know uh, that other cultures people are proud of of their traditions and I think Jews need to know more about what they come from they need to know Hebrew um, they need to visit Israel and discover Israel and can be extremely proud of who they are doesn't mean that you're not critical and make yourself better but learn about your where you came from be proud of it and I think that's really the best way the best answer to anti-Semitism is be proud of who you are and. And haters are going to hate. Be proud of who you are. I uh, I think you know where I stand on that. So um, no. I uh, I think that's great. Um, this isn't in uh, this isn't in the in you know from my community, but someone that I know wanted to ask you. Um, have you ever been threatened? Have you ever been actually scared, uh, given the animosity and the hatred towards you? Any? Yeah, it's 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 a very good question, but um, I. Um, 
obviously people, all kinds of things are said on the internet. Uh, but beyond that, I don't discuss security issues, but obviously all kinds of things are said. And generally uh, I, I work at the United Nations in Geneva and thankfully Geneva usually plays by Geneva rules, but it's a dangerous world. And, uh, and we we're certainly uh, vigorous and alert to any threats that may arise. I think, uh, I think I want to wrap this up by reading a couple of things that uh, people have said about you. Okay, so um, just hear me out on this. This is directed towards you, uh, comments that have been made. You're not just a candle, Hillel, but a beacon of light. May you be blessed like Abraham, numerously as the stars. This brilliant young man is a beacon of truth. We need millions more like him, people who will yell out that the emperor has no clothes on. And the last one, to fight that battle day in, day out, knowing that it might be futile, yet still trying to make a difference, not just for Jews, but for all those whose human rights are violated, yet have no voice. You are the voice. And yes, they will hate you because they know you are right and a better human being than they will ever be. Hold your head high, Hillel. You are an unsung hero of our times. So I kind of feel the same way about you. Uh, keep doing what you're doing. Keep inspiring. Keep rocking. And uh, really, you are uh, doing wonderful things that are not easy. A lot of people see you. A lot of people hear you. And we appreciate you. And just thank you. Thank you, Eitan. Those are really kind words uh, from you and from, from your followers, and it really means a lot. And it's, I'd say that going into the difficult place where I go into the United Nations, it is that support and encouragement that we get from, uh, from friends and supporters around the world that is the wind in our sails. So I'm going to take that with me, and it's going to be uh, more strength to do the right thing at the United Nations. You are not alone, sir. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Pleasure. Well, that's it. Thanks for listening to I'm That Podcast. Go ahead and subscribe to the show on iTunes. And if you'd like, leave a rating and review. Tune in for the next episode and see you soon.